2006, October 18th. Today is Lecture 20, Tides, which will begin in just a moment. <laughs> Not everyone is listening to the podcast is actually just taking this class in this room. We have listeners all over the world, it seems. It's uh, different. Okay, so we'll do a little shout-out to them once in a while every now and then just to make certain they're listening. Today's Lecture 20. We're not quite halfway through the class, but we certainly turned over a new digit today. Lecture 20 is going to be on tides. We've been talking about gravity. This is gravity week in the class. We've talked about universal gravity for falling objects and tossing erasers and things like that. We talked about how the laws of motion combined with gravity can explain what's going on with orbits. Just using those simple rules, you can explain a lot about orbits. In fact, answering a question here this morning gave you a little glimpse of how we can do celestial mechanics, how I can navigate a spacecraft from one planet to another just using Newton's laws and a little bit of fancy engineering. One of the gives you an idea of how good Newton's laws are for determination of orbits. A number of years ago, the Voyager 1 spacecraft was launched. Uh, Voyager 1 was launched in the, um, gosh, it was 1970s. Um, went out first to Jupiter, and then did a little gravity assist around Jupiter, and then went on to Saturn. And then the Voyager 2, well, they weren't sure it was going to survive to Saturn, but it did. So they sent it on to Uranus and Neptune. It did a grand tour of the outer four planets. When I was a postdoc at Texas, it made its pass by the planet Neptune. It had traveled many billions of kilometers over the course of nearly, oh gosh, at that point it was getting up on, so that had been 89. It was launched in the mid-70s. It had been flying for like 13, 14 years. I don't remember the exact time. Flew many, many billions of kilometers. And the difference between where the spacecraft ended up during close approach to the planet Neptune and where the predictions from Newtonian physics said it should be is the difference from this side of the stage to over there. So you can use this to send the spacecraft billions of kilometers and miss it by a handful of meters. It's absolutely amazing. There's another consequence of gravity, however, that we haven't talked about. And you'd think it was kind of a topic you wouldn't want to talk about much in central Ohio because we don't live near the ocean and the Great Lake doesn't really count. It has tides, but not the same way. Why would we want to talk that much about tides? Isn't that just kind of an Earth weather thing? It actually turns out that tides are going to be absolutely essential to understanding a lot of what goes on inside the solar system. So today's lecture is going to be on an interesting consequence of gravity, the effect of tides. The key ideas are as follows. The first is to make just a basic statement. What tides are is they're caused by the difference in the moon's gravitational pull from the near side to the far side of the Earth. Now, that's a very provincial way of looking at tides because I'm only talking about what are the tides that I see if I'm standing on the Earth. But tides are a much more general phenomenon, as we're going to see. They occur elsewhere in the solar system. For, exact, for example, what are some tidal effects that produce observable consequences? One of them is something called tidal locking. This is why the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth. It is tidally locked in a one-to-one -one spin orbit resonance with the Earth due to the action of the tides, of tides raised in the moon by the Earth. Difference of gravity again. We also get a feedback of that system on the Earth. The Earth's rotation is slowing down. The day is getting a little bit longer as a consequence of an effect called tidal breaking. So the day has not always been the day. It's actually changed length over hi the history of the Earth because of the interaction between the Earth and the Moon through the agency of gravitational tides. Finally, there's a, a third feedback is if, since we're slowing down, that rotational energy's got to go somewhere, it's actually causing the Moon to recess. The Moon is actually getting a little further away 
from the earth. And we'll see a little bit of what that is, how we measure that, and what this predicts for the future of the system. Tides turn out to be a surprisingly important phenomenon. You don't just need to know them if you're a fisherman or a sailor working near the shore. Tides turn out to be one of the important agencies of determining what we call dynamical evolution in the solar system or any other gravitating system. Things are not always as they were and will not always be as they are now because the systems change slowly over time and tides are an important agency of that change. So we're going to get an introduction to them today. How many of you have actually been to the seashore for any amount of time or even lived near the seashore? That's a good number. How many of you have experienced high tide and low tide? How many of you paid attention to know when high tide came and low tide or did it just sort of just happened? A few people do. I used to live in Santa Cruz, California. That's where I went to grad school. I lived only three quarters of a mile from Seabright Beach. It was great. Of course, this is northern California. The water's too cold to swim in. But I used to go down and walk on the beach when the other people weren't there because I had the beach to myself. It was great. But I started paying attention for the first time to tides. I grew up in the Mojave Desert. I didn't live near the ocean. And anyone who spends any time living near the ocean begins to become conscious of the, of the effect of tides. Now, in Monterey Bay, where Santa Cruz is, the tides are kind of subtle. Now, all, my, all the friends I had who were surfers, they knew about the tides. They could tell you to the minute when the tides were going to come. Dude, time to go out to the, to the point. Uh, you know, they would know when the tide was in and out. It's kind of boring to surf at low tide. Um, but if, you know, a couple of years ago I've spent some time up in New England and Maine and suddenly become very conscious of the tide, even if you're not looking, you can smell during low tide because, you know, it really smells bad and the mud flats are open. Basically what you find is that twice a day, sea level appears to change at a given location. Twice a day we have what's called high tide when the ocean seems to be highest and the water's lapping as high as it does on the shore. And then the other half of the time, Twice a day, there's low tide when the ocean flows out and the mud flats are revealed and the lobsters are, are clacking around on the, on the main seashore and it smells real bad. You pay attention to these things because, of course, you want to catch the flow of tide going out. If you're sailing away, you want to catch the flood of the tide, the ebb of the tide coming in to make your way in. Timing of tides turns out to be governed by the moon. And this is an old observation. Uh, certainly the Greeks figured this out, or anybody who lived by the sea figured out right away that tides don't just occur every 12 hours. They occur between high tides is 12 hours, 25 minutes. Now, you don't have to get smacked upside the head or even have a very accurate timekeeping convention to realize that that's exactly twice the time between moon rises. The sun rises every day about 12 hours. Not quite, right? There's different times of the year and above the horizon. But on the day of the equinox, the sun will rise and set in a 24-hour cycle. Certainly, the sun is at noon every 24 hours. But if you watch moon rise and moon set, or you watch when the moon is on your meridian, it happens every 12, 24 hours and 50 minutes. And the reason, of course, is that the moon goes around the sky through a cycle of phases in about 28 days. So it's going to move quite a bit towards the east over the course of that day. So 24 hours for the rotation of the Earth, plus an extra 50 minutes of motion because it's moved one day through its orbit. And this is exactly twice the intertidal interval. So if you wanted to know when to predict the tides were, watch the moon. So people knew that the moon was somehow the cause of the tides, but they didn't know why it was the case really wasn't made clear. One of Galileo's biggest mistakes as a scientist was to ascribe the tides to sloshing of water on a moving Earth. He, for whatever reason, ignored the lunar effect, which would have been known to any illiterate sailor along the, along the Italian shore. 
But he simply ignored it, and it was a big mistake because he grounded that as one of his arguments for the Copernican system and the motion of the Earth. It's trying to be completely wrong. The pull of the moon turns out to be important, and Newton, when he formulated the law of gravity, not only explained why the moon should be controlling the tides, but could explain why they had the cycle they did. So the demonstration I'm going to present today follows more or less in the Newtonian line, although we're not taking much of an historical approach to it. The reason is because the gravity force falls off as one over the distance squared between two objects. Now, we've been talking mostly about bulk gravitation. I talk about the gravity force of the Earth upon the Moon and the Moon back upon the Earth in equal and opposite strength. And I talk about the difference between their distance between their centers. But, you know, the Earth has a physical extent. Now, I've exaggerated that physical extent at this picture. But if I'm standing on the front side of the Earth, I'm standing, say, here, and I'm looking up, and the Moon is as high as it ever gets in the sky, I'm closer to the moon by that much. So the moon's gravity upon me is going to be a little bit stronger. Whereas a person on the opposite side of the Earth, or maybe I wait 12 hours to rotate around to the other side of the Earth, now I've got the Earth between me and the moon. The moon's gravity is still pulling upon me, but I'm further away. Gravity force gets weaker as one over the square of the distance. The difference between my center and the moon's center is now bigger Therefore, the gravity force is weaker. Well, I can put in some real numbers here. I've obviously compressed the scale here. The difference from one side of the Earth to the other is about 12,700 kilometers. The average distance of the Earth to the moon is about 380,000 kilometers. And so if I ask, using the inverse square law of force, how much stronger is the force of gravity of the moon on me when I'm on the near side of the Earth, as seen by the moon, when I'm closest to the moon, than when I'm on the opposite side of the Earth and as far as I ever get from the moon at that day, the answer turns out to be about 7%. So if I could measure the lunar gravitational force right now, which is pretty close because the moon is in, in a waning crescent phase, and so the moon is probably, let's see, north, yeah, it's somewhere. moon's probably about right there. And I wait 12 hours when the moon is below my feet, I would feel 7% less force. Of course, I'm not sensible of that force because it is kind of tiny. I don't have a lot of mass, but it's there. And it's true of any particular little mass at any point on the Earth. If I go up here, like on this picture here, up at the North Pole, I feel a force of gravity. But notice the force is directed from my center, if I'm standing up here, through the center of the moon. So the arrow of the force that I've drawn here as arrows goes this way. If I'm down here at the South Pole, I feel about the same force. I'm about the same distance of the moon, here, shown here. This is close to an equinoctial view. Notice the arrow is not straight out, it's up at an angle. Furthermore, there's even a force on the center of the Earth, which is, of course, the force of gravity pulling in there. So I have a strong force, a weaker force, a slightly weaker force. So I get a differential gravitational force. There's a strong difference between the gravity on the near side, and again, near side meaning nearest the moon, than the gravity on the far side. And there's a slight directionality to it as well. It goes on a straight line between whatever you're looking at through the center of the moon. Now, what consequence does this difference have? Well, I'm going to exaggerate the effect. If I go into a frame of reference where I say, look, the Earth and moon are orbiting around a common center of mass, so what is the net force compared to the force at the center? So I subtract off that short arrow for the center force. 
The force on the side nearest the moon has an excess net force forward. On the opposite side of the Earth, on the far side from the moon, that force is smaller than the force in the center because it's further from the moon than the center. So its net arrow is going to be pointing backwards. Similarly, if I go up here, there's a net force going this way, but it's going at an angle. So it seems to be actually a net force pointing towards the center of the Earth. And then at these other intermediate places, I get these other directions. And I can simply draw the picture of what is the difference of the force at each point along the circle of the Earth relative to the moon, subtracting off the force on the Earth's center. Because remember, the Earth and moon are falling around each other. What's the leftover difference, the residual <coughs> force? And you'll notice the effect is to take the Earth and kind of want to stretch it along the Earth-Moon line and compress it along the perpendicular. With the magic of PowerPoint, of course, I can exaggerate that. It's as if the Earth is being squeezed along the poles in this picture and stretched along the equator. Now, I've grossly exaggerated the effect here for, for, for appearance, but the effect is that you get not one, but two tidal bulges. One facing the moon, and the other one away from the moon along the Earth-Moon line. This is why we have two tides per day. Because I can raise the tides in the body of the Earth, but the Earth is made of fairly stiff material, so it doesn't stretch much. And I can raise tides in that body of water that covers three quarters of the surface. Water flows, and it can stretch into the tidal bulge. And that gives me the effect of two ocean tides and two body tides stretched out on the Earth-Moon line. So I get both. It's not just a stretch. Your book will talk about it just being a stretch. It's not just a stretch. It's a stretch along the Earth-Moon line and a squeeze vertically. So the Earth is kind of elastic. And the Earth is elastic. It actually is able to stretch and squeeze. Not as much as I've shown. It's really small. We'll see what those values are in just a second. Now, at the same time as I did this on the Earth, I can play the same game on the Moon. The Moon will appear to stretch in the direction of the Earth-Moon line because there's a difference in gravitational force from the front to the back. And it will squeeze along the poles as I've drawn it here. Now, of course, the moon is a smaller body, so the difference from one side to the other is smaller. But that's offset by the fact that the Earth is a whole lot bigger. And so the gravitational force on a given moon rock on the near side of the far side will be different, enough to actually stretch body tides in the moon. Not only do I stretch Earth, the moon causes tides on the Earth, the Earth raises tides on the moon. It's equal and opposite. It's a mutual effect. Now, how big is the tidal bulge? If I take the stretch and I've exaggerated, how big is it really? Well, rock is pretty stiff stuff. Go out and try to squeeze a rock sometime. It really isn't that easy. But it does, in fact, if you look at the crust of the Earth, the crust of the Earth is broken into plates. It's riding on a kind of silly putty-like material, which we'd call the, the mantle below. And so the Earth actually has a bit of elasticity to it. And if you do this, you can actually compute what the body tides are. They're about 30 centimeters. So if you go to a place where the moon is perpendicular rather than the moon being straight on the line, the Earth actually does stretch by about 30 centimeters out of its normal shape when it passes through, when it rotates through the Earth-Moon line. 30 centimeters is quite a bit. It's about that much, about a foot, round numbers. Water, on the other hand, is fluid. It flows very easily. It flows with gravity, right? Water always flows downhill. 
So the ocean tides can be quite large. In fact, in the open ocean, they can be as much as one meter. So that's out in the middle of the Pacific, say. If the middle of the Pacific is right on the line between the center of the Earth and the center of the moon, in round numbers, actually has to be within about 10 degrees of that, then the ocean height will actually be one meter larger than it would be normally. The ocean floor comes up about 30 centimeters. The ocean liquid comes up about one meter, roughly along the same line. Now, one meter does not seem like a really high tide. Any of you have experienced really high tides, especially like on the New England coast or on the Oregon coast, for example, will know that the high and low tide can be many meters. So why is it that high tide is not just a meter? Why isn't it more subtle? And the answer is that, that there's other, some second-order effects which are quite important to determining how high a high tide is at any given locale. For example, if you're near the shore, you get flow of water in various ways, and whether it flows through a deep channel or a shallow channel, whether it flows through a narrow inlet or something else like that, the detailed shape of the seafloor, is it flat, is it sloping, all of those things work together to either accentuate or desensuate the amount of tidal effect. So if you have a really flat ocean floor, wide open view of the ocean, the tides are not quite as dramatic. If you get a meter tide, you're lucky. But in some places, you can get very dramatic tides. So for example, in the Bay of Fundy in Canada. Any of you ever been to the Bay of Fundy? Yeah, at least a couple people have. The tides there can be amazing. So here's this picture that we're going to get now of the difference of the earth tide, body tide as we call it, and the liquid ocean tides. I've drawn again, now we're looking down from the rotation axis of the Earth, so I've drawn the rotation here. North is coming out of the board. Take your right hand, put your thumb out of the board, curl your fingers, that tells you the direction of rotation of the Earth. It also happens to tell you the direction of orbit of the Moon, as we'll see in a moment. The Earth is shown here as the brown circle. It doesn't stretch very much, whereas the ocean tides, I've greatly exaggerated. It's pulled out along the Earth-Moon line and compressed a bit along the perpendicular line. Along, if, the, if you happen to be at a location, which is along this line at that instant, you will see high tide. You will see high tide when the moon is pretty close to overhead on one side, and you'll see the high, next high tide when the moon is below your feet. So you'll see the next high tide come back around when the moon is up again, but the moon has moved a bit in its orbit. That's why it's every 12 hours, 45 minutes. It's half of that 24 hours, 50 minutes for the complete cycle of lunar motion as seen from a location on the Earth. Where the Earth is getting squeezed a bit in the perpendicular direction, we get the lowest tide. And so you see the lowest height of my sort of cartoon ocean here on a rotating Earth. So the way you can think of it is there's a flow down into the bulge, and then the Earth is turning around this as we move around. Now there's some more complication we're going to layer on here in just a second. If the seashore is just right shape, you can get some amazing tides. For example, this is a picture from the Bay of Fundy. The difference between high tide, where the boat is right up against the, uh, the dock here with all the lobster crates, and then low tide, the, the, the boat is literally sitting down on the mud flat with a very long ladder that they're always very careful to put on their docks in the Bay of Fundy. This particular area of the Bay of Fundy will have tides between 17 and 18 meters. And it's very, very dramatic when this occurs. You can see the ocean is out there with a little bit of tidal slough there. But in other places, you barely see any tide at all. You actually get tides on the Great Lakes. They're just not as obvious, again, because of the way the shape of the lake is, the flow, and things like that. Ocean tides are very obvious. Now, if the moon can raise tides on the Earth, what about the sun? After all, 
The side that's in daylight is closer to the sun than the side that's in nighttime by, on average, about 12,700 kilometers. And the sun is really big. It's more than 300,000 times more massive than the Earth. Of course, it is 150 million kilometers away. So we're looking at a difference from front to back of you know, 12,000 kilometers out of 150 million, but that bigger mass all comes together. It turns out you can find there is a gravitational force between the daytime and night size of the Earth, which is basically due to the sun tide. And you do the calculation, you find that turns out to be about half of the tide that's raised by the moon. So if we had no moon, we would still have high tide and low tide, except now they would come every 12 hours because they'd be governed by the sun. Because the moon has twice the tidal influence of the sun, the tides are primarily governed by the effect of the, of the moon every 12 hours and 25 minutes because of the 24-hour, 15-minute lunar motion in the sky from lunar moon, moon and noon to moon and noon, if you will. But there's an additional effect due adding on top of that the sun tides. And since the moon and the sun are not always on the same line, they add and subtract in various funny ways. Obviously, the very highest high tides you'll ever get are called the spring tides. Those happen at new moon and full moon when the earth, moon, and sun are all in a line. And so the tidal bulge raised by the sun and the tidal bulge raised by the moon add together. And you get the highest high tides are called spring tides. And they happen twice a month at new moon and full moon. The lowest high tides, that time when the highest tide of the moon is offset by an opposite pole from the sun, are called neap tides. This is going to be when the sun and moon are at right angles. Because remember, what a tidal stretch is, there's a tidal stretch, but there's also a perpendicular right angle compression as well. So you stretch and you squeeze. So if the sun is stretching you this way, and the moon is at right angles at first or last quarter, it's stretching this way and squeezing this way, whereas the sun's stretching that way and squeezing in the opposite direction. So you get a little bit of offset from both sides, and you get the smallest difference between tides. And it occurs twice a month at first and last quarter phase. So for example, spring tide. Here's a spring tide shown at full moon. The moon is on one side of the Earth. The sun is on the other, and the Earth is in the middle. You get the tide of the moon and the tide of the Earth exactly line up. And then you get the squeeze due to the both tides also adding up. So you get the highest high tides and the lowest low tides. At neap tide, we're at first quarter or last quarter moon. And I've shown this at first quarter moon. You can tell because remember the moon orbits in the right hand rule. So it'll come out of new moon into first quarter here. The moon's down there. It's stretching the oceans this way and compressing them along the Earth-Sun line, whereas it's stretching them along the Earth-Moon line. But the sun is at right angles. It's trying to stretch the oceans and the Earth along the Earth-Sun line, but it's trying to compress them along the Earth-Moon line. So both of those act to offset the other's tides. And I do get a high tide and low tide because the sun's tide is half that of the moon. It can't perfectly cancel. But it gives me a lower high tide and a higher low tide. So I get so-called neap tides twice a day. So for example, we've just come out of the time of neap tide. We're heading closer to new moon, which is going to occur in about less than a week. At new moon, it will be spring tide. So it's tied very strongly again to the moon, because even though the moon is a smaller body, it's closer to us. 
And closer to us means the difference from the front side to the back side of the Earth as seen from the moon is bigger. And that both of those things add together. Being closer and having a larger difference gives you a larger tide. If the sun and moon had exactly the same tidal influence, it would be much more complicated. Neap tide would be a time of virtually no tide at all. But because the sun is half the moon's tide, we get a little bit of tide still, not as dramatic as being a spring tide. The best time to be by the ocean time is near full moon or new moon. Then you can really see what the oceans are, what the, what the, what the tides are like. You also get a little additional effect um, that comes into play because the moon is closer to the Earth during some times than others. It's closer to the Earth at ap- apogee, further from the Earth at perigee. And there is a slight exaggeration of tides if you happen to get a new moon or full moon at apogee at the same time that the Earth and Sun are at aphelion. So you get the closest distance between the Earth and the Moon and the Earth and the Sun, and they're lined up in the phase to give you the greatest extension of tides. So there's all these other little effects that sort of cycle through in the, in the way this works. So that's tides. Any questions about tides, basic ocean tides and stuff like that before we go on? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what would be the physical effect if you received the negative eye and there was something Right. The question was what is the physical effect? What can you see during neap tide? Well, you have to actually be kind of living near the place for a while and notice that, yeah, it's it's time for high tide, meaning for example, let's see, I'll say it's first quarter moon, and the first quarter moon is going to be highest in your sky right at sunset. So you might be out at sunset and notice that it's high tide because you, you notice the, the water's up high on the marker, but it doesn't come as high as it did when you had high tide during new moon or full moon. So it will, it will manifest as it will be a high tide. You will see the flow in with the tide and the flow out with the tide, sort of the ebb and flow that you get. But whichever way that works. I never know which way ebb and flow is supposed to go. Uh, it flows in and it flows out, but you'll notice it doesn't, doesn't flow in as fast. There isn't as much of it, and it doesn't come as high. So that's actually the names neap tide and spring tide. The word spring tide actually comes from the, like a spring of water. Things kind of, the water seems to spring up. It's not, it's not super dramatic. It's not like, whoa, step back, it's going to swallow me kind of things. Tides are very gradual. They sneak up on you a bit. But people notice that there were higher high tides at some times and lower low tides, and they notice that they corresponded to particular phases of the moon. Right, yeah, the, the neap tide is sort of, it's less dramatic than a spring tide. Spring tides can be very, very large changes between high tide and, new, and, high tide and low tide, whereas neap tide in some places you almost can't notice. If things are, you know, again, because there's all this effect of seashore and stuff like that. So it's worth keeping an eye out. If you ever get a chance to sort of hang out by the ocean for more than a month, watch the cycle of tides. It's actually kind of fun to do that. I did that when I lived in Santa Cruz. I actually got to learn how to get into the whole rhythm of the tides. It was really kind of neat. I didn't learn how to surf, though. <laughs> Um, I'm just not a surfer type, but just not. All right. Now, what are the effects of, what are some of the other effects of tides? The ocean tides, of course, are the most dramatic of these things, but there's other effects that go on that are more subtle. Moon raises tides on the Earth. As I said before, the moon can also have tides raised on it by the Earth. After all, there's a difference between the near side of the moon and the far side of the moon. The moon, however, is a solid body, so we don't have any ocean tides, but we do have body tides. We do have solid rock tides raised on the moon by the Earth. 
The Earth is a lot more massive, so the tides are actually fairly strong. It is the difference from one side to the other, but that difference is, is a lot bigger because of the bigger mass. Now, what this does is, as the moon goes around, if let's say the moon was rotating, let's say the moon was, I mean, the moon is rotating, let's say the moon was rotating really fast, so I saw near side, far side, near side, far side, and it was rotating through its own tidal bulge. Then what you would get is you would alternately take a location and you squeeze it, and then you go through the other part and you'd stretch it, stretch and squeeze and stretch and squeeze. And if you ever stretch and squeeze and stretch and squeeze a tennis ball over and over again, the tennis ball starts getting warm. You start actually causing an effect known as tidal heating. Well, heat's a form of energy, and that energy's got to come from somewhere. And where that energy is going to come from is it's going to take it out of the rotation. You know, as you, as you rotate, it sort of gets a little resistance to being squeezed and stretched. Rock does not like being squeezed and stretched. So if you let this effect work for a long time, eventually you're going to bleed away the, Earth's, the moon's rotation until you finally slow the rotation to the point that it locks so that the tidal stretch, the moon doesn't rotate through its tidal stretch anymore. Its tidal stretch is always pointing down at the Earth at the same location, more or less. So what tidal stretching does, what raising body tides in a rotating, orbiting object around the parent body can do, is it actually leads to an eventual slowing down. This effect is actually really slow. If you're in a perfectly circular orbit, it's not going to work very well at all. But if you're in an elliptical orbit, you alternately come close and then far. So you get a strong tide and then a slightly weaker tide, plus you're doing all this squeeze and stretch nonsense. And as you do that, You'll slowly give up rotational energy and you slow down until your rotation and orbit exactly match. You're tidally brought into something called a one-to-one -one spin orbit resonance. There's physical processes that drive you into that exact locking state. And we refer to this state as tidal locking. It's called tidal locking because what the tides do is they dynamically lock the rotation of the moon to the moon's orbit around the Earth. So the tides are the agency that forced the moon into rotation around the Earth. The moon would not have started out with a perfectly synchronous rotation. That, that isn't effect expected physically. It would have evolved dynamically into that state because it becomes energetically favorable. Because once you get into that locked state, you break the cycle of stretching and squeezing because you're always stretched and squeezed to a first approximation in the same way. And that's the lowest energy state. And so you bounce into that lowest energy state and you lock there. This is why the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth. It's not a cosmic accident. It's an effect of the fact that over the last four and a half billion years, there has been a steady dynamical evolution. There's been continuous stretch and squeeze of the tides of the Earth raising tides on the moon that has eventually led to this effect of tidal locking. <coughs> And it doesn't just happen on the moon. We're going to see elsewhere in the solar system other examples of tidal locking, of places where the rotation of an object is being affected by the tides of its parent body. Usually it's moons, but sometimes it's even planets. For example, the planet Mercury is in a spin orbit resonance. Not a perfect tidally locked spin orbit resonance, but a different one. And we'll see that in a couple days when we get into the solar system. So we'll be on the lookout as we go through the class, look for the effects of rotation and, and orbit, spin if you will, if you want to call that, spin orbit resonance, spin orbit locking through the agency of tides. It's actually a very important phenomenon in the solar system. Now, to every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And what this kind of, one of the consequences of this 
is remember that we're talking about what happens because the Earth is raising tides on the moon, but there's another effect which comes into play here too. The Earth is not locked into a one-to-one spin-orbit resonance with the moon. The Earth rotates around once every 24 hours. The moon orbits around the Earth 28 and a half days. There's a complete mismatch between the rotation of the Earth and the orbit of the moon. Now, it turns out that because of where the moon orbits, the Earth is rotating faster than the moon orbits. That's why we we watch a day go round and the moon comes up on the meridian, and it'll be on that meridian another 24 hours, 50 minutes later. Now, the ocean and the seafloor are not are flowing against each other. Remember, there's a body tide and there's the ocean tides, and the Earth is turning out from underneath this ocean tide. Now, the oceans are, are flowing around, the oceans are rotating around with the Earth, but as you flow in and flow out of these bulges, the water's flowing over the seafloor, and as it flows over the seafloor, it's going to drag on the seafloor. So as the drag of the seafloor ocean tidal bulges works in the direction of rotation, So it feels that direction of rotation, and it pulls against it. It drags on the rotation. So what you do is is this is going to lead to the fact that the ocean tides, I said before, were lined up on the Earth-Moon line. They're not. They're actually going to get out a little ahead of the Earth-Moon line by about 10 degrees, because if the Earth wasn't rotating, if the Earth was perfectly synchronously locked with its orbit, then the tidal bulge of the oceans would be perfectly along the Earth-Moon line. But because the Earth is rotating out from underneath them, like this, underneath those tides, the tides get dragged forward a bit in the direction of rotation. You think about this, a little bit of drag on this. Drags them forward by about 10 degrees. Now, this friction is not without cost. Friction costs you energy. If you don't believe that, rub your hands together and they suddenly get warm. Where do you think the heat's coming from? The heat's being transferred from the energy of motion in your muscles. It's being lost to the system as heat. So friction is robbing energy from the Earth's rotation. And if you rob energy from the Earth's rotation, you make it rotate slower. We can measure this. We can measure the length of the day. And we have been measuring the length of the day, not only for many years, but for many centuries. There's one really cute effect that occurs. Think about that tidal flow in, tidal flow out. Tidal flow in, tidal flow out. As the tides flow in, they carry a bit of sand. As they flow out, they carry a bit of sand back. But if some of that sand gets down on the coral, you can slowly build up sediments that layer back and forth. The thickness of the layers and the timing of those layers records the time of the tides. So you can actually find rock formations in corals and things like that that record the rotation of the Earth millions of years ago. The Earth was rotating faster. The day was shorter. And we can measure over the last roughly 2,700 years and we find that the day has actually been getting longer by about 23 milliseconds, 0.0023 seconds per century. So it's not really that dramatic, but it's enough that we have to adjust our clocks a little bit over time. This effect, where the tides are leading to a general gradual slowing of the Earth, is tidal breaking. So we've seen tidal locking. Now we're seeing an effect of tidal breaking. It's because I've got one part of the Earth, one component is a fluid component, Flowing underneath that is a solid component which feels a different tide. Here's a picture illustrating this. We're looking at the Earth-Moon system from above. The Earth is rotating in a right-hand sense. This white line above is the Earth-Moon line. That would normally be the tide line. But the Earth is rotating out from underneath this and dragging the tidal bulge ahead by 10 degrees.
So the first effect is this tidal bulge acts like a pair of brake pads on the Earth. It's a very, very inefficient brake pad, but it's enough to change the rotation of the Earth by 23 milliseconds per century. It also has another effect. Notice that there's a lot of mass out here in front of the moon. Mass has gravity. What happens? Well, the moon is going to feel a slight forward tug because it's looking down its line and says, hey, there's ocean tides kind of 10 degrees out in front of me. But I'm rotating in this direction, so I feel a tug in the same direction I'm rotating. Forces produce accelerations. So that extra little bit of 10 degrees in front accelerates the moon a little bit. Well, we just asked a question. What happens if I take an object in an orbit and I give it a little extra speed? It moves into a slightly higher elliptical orbit. And so, in fact, what you get is because the ocean bulge is 10 degrees out in front of the moon's motion because of the faster rotation of the Earth, the moon gets a net forward acceleration. This net acceleration speeds it up in its orbit slightly, moving it into a very slightly higher orbit. How slightly? Well, the so-called lunar recession amounts to about 3.8 centimeters per year. It's actually quite a bit. And we can measure this by using something called Doppler laser ranging. When the astronauts landed on the moon, and when the Soviets dropped a couple of robotic probes called the Linochods up on the, on the moon, they put retro reflectors away, basically like um, automobile or bicycle reflectors, but really high precision, highly polished ones. You take a telescope, fire a laser through that telescope, bounce it off of one of these arrays, and you time how long it takes your laser pulse to go up to the moon, hit this spot, and bounce back. Laser timing. You know the speed of light. You can measure the surround, the, the round trip time. By measuring the round trip time and knowing the speed of light, you know the distance of the moon. These are really cool. This is a McDonald Observatory in, in West Texas. It's one of the main places for doing laser ranging. I sat up one night while they did laser ranging one evening. They let me, they let me push the button. Um, you look at a picture of the moon and you point the telescope to roughly where it is and you hit the button until it hits the retroreflector array and it gets a return It makes nice little ping sounds. It's like you're playing a little ping pong game. And you actually can measure this recession. And we've been continuing to measure the recession since the first moon landing in 1979. And it amounts to about 3.8 centimeters per year. So what does this mean? Well, there's two effects coming into play. Tides are causing the Earth to rotate more slowly. Some of that energy is being given to the moon. It's being given to the moon by this out in front tidal force accelerating it forward. That gives you a slight extra speed. So the energy that's being robbed from the rotating Earth by the tidal friction, tidal breaking, is in part being given to the moon and causing the moon to accelerate a little bit. So the energy is changing hands. It's another way of viewing the same thing with energy instead of with forces. So the moon is getting more energy, the Earth is rotating slower, and the moon is moving further out. Now eventually what's going to happen, if this can work for a few billion years, the moon is going to get 50% further away. When it does that, the lunar sidereal month, the cycle of the phases, is going to be up around 47 days, but the Earth's rotation period will have slowed to the point that one day will be 47 present days. And so now, all of a sudden, the moon-Earth will come into a perfect tidal lock. We will always keep the same face towards the moon, the moon will always keep the same face towards us, and it will take 47 days to go around. This is an example of what's known as dynamical evolution. Okay? 
Tides are an agency for exchanging energy between rotating and orbiting objects. Tidal resonances determine rotation periods. The locked synchronous rotation of the moon and Mercury, as we're going to see. You can get perfect tidal locking. Pluto and Charon, the outer near, used to be a planet of the solar system, is in the state the moon and Earth will be in in a few billion years. They're both tidally and rotationally locked to each other. We're also going to see this tidal heating effect very dramatically in the moon Io around Jupiter and the moon Triton around Neptune. It's actually going to induce a kind of volcanism in these planets. Tides are absolutely essential to understanding the dynamical evolution of the solar system. We're going to see it over and over again as we proceed through our adventure in the solar system later in the quarter. See you all tomorrow.